All right, so uh, this week I was uh, walking through Home Depot, uh, and I had to pick up a few things for my garden and my house, and, uh, and I, I came into the store from the garden side. You know, Home Depot has kind of two main entrances, and I was coming through the garden side. I, I pick up the few things that I need, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm at Home Depot. I'm sure there are other fun toys that I could pick up while I'm here. And so I made my way around. And I navigated myself through the lamps and the lights. I, I continued on through all the appliances, pushing, was, you know, pushing all the buttons and dreaming about what I could upgrade to next. Uh, I went uh, to the wood section and just had all these great ideas, like, oh, I could build that or I could build that. And I started making that turn uh, to get back to the front of the store to cash out, to get to the register. And I, I was walking through and I just froze. I stopped in my tracks because the whole front right corner of the store was uh, ready for Christmas. <laughs> it had trees and, and, and decorations, and it had an inflatable snow people and reindeer, and I, I was so shocked. I, I stood there, and I was like, are they even playing Christmas music right now? It's October, y'all. It's October. There's a name for this. It's called the Christmas Creep, and here, here's what it is. Christmas Creep is the mad dash by real t- retailers to get consumers in the holiday spirit that continues to eat up more of the calendar, right? So this Christmas creep has proven so successful that there are stores who are still moving earlier and earlier to launch us into the Christmas spirit. A couple years ago, uh, there's a survey that was done of the top 100 uh, retailers in the U.S. It was done by Tampa Bay Times, and they found that Best Buy uh, began Christmas decorations and introducing Christmas music uh, before October 22nd. Office Depot, Office Max, uh, mid-November, Walmart, Dick Sporting Goods before Thanksgiving. You know, in fact, just this week, I was out trying to buy some uh, Halloween decorations and candy, and I walk into a store, and I can't find it because the whole main display is all Christmas stuff, and I had to go to clearance in the back to get Halloween stuff. with the challenges of finding rhythm in our ever-changing world and, and then having to refine new rhythms at every new season and these seasons that seem to be uh, changing and arriving faster and more often than they used to, I'm reminded of how important it is to take a moment, to pause to be centered, and, and that's why we're doing this Autumn Reflection series as we're journeying through First Timothy. It's really so that we as individuals and as a church can find time and space to be centered and to be preparing for all that is to come. And so two weeks ago, we launched this sermon series looking at the ways that we tell stories and how they propel us, our stories, our narratives propel us into the future. It's one thing to name that moment in time. It's another to name that moment in the context of God's unfinished story with us. And then last week, we talked about prayer. And we talked about to whom we pray and for what. And we we reminded ourselves that we pray to God, but we pray to God for the sake of the world. And so we pray for one another to God for the sake of the world. It is that our God is the one who holds our hopes and our trusts and our dreams, and we go to our God in prayer. 
And so today we're going to close this series by uh, looking at how we understand contentment and happiness. Contentment and happiness. And so to review, uh, we don't actually know too much about this book, right? This letter that was written uh, sometime between uh, the mid-60s CE all the way to the early second century. And so it's not clear who actually wrote this letter. It could have been Paul, the individual. It could have been one of his disciples. It could have been somebody who grew up in the communities that he formed, but all the same, we don't know who wrote it, and therefore we don't know who it was intended for, right? It could have been one person, it couldn't have been to a whole community, but what we do know is that this text, this letter, uh, was written so that communities can grow together. There's parts of the letter that say, hey, you do this, or you do that, and when we hear the you, it's actually the plural. So y'all do this, y'all do that. As we live together, y'all walk alongside one another in this life of discipleship, and he's writing, this author's writing to people like us, people who are journeying in community, saying that we want to do this life together, that we want to be in this community together. And so we're going to go to verses 6 through 8. I want to invite you to to listen again. Here's what it says. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Remember, the, the author's writing in this first century, in the, in the early Roman Empire, right? The, the early Christian communities starting to be established are really small. They're, they're persecuted. They're, they're starting to build because they're gathering in people's homes. They're just making those connections with one another. They're making do with all that they had. And while there were those who had money and who had power and who had status— When we think about that early Roman Empire in that late first century, early second century, for the most part, riches could only be acquired through continued cooperation and support with the Roman administration. In other words, if you were rich, generally, if you were rich, it meant that you were supporting the system that was in place, an empire empirical system that was in place that oppressed the majority for the sake of a few. And so in this context, the author is not only challenging these systems of oppression, these systems of empire, the author is not only envisioning of a world that has more equal distribution of material resources, but the author is going deeper into your personal life and saying, if you want to be part of this world, if you want to live this life of faith, you too must be centered and reframe the way that you understand life. And so the author here is urging contentment, right? This power of being at peace with what we have and who we are. It's this combination, again, in verse 6, of course there is great gain in godliness as well combined with contentment. Godliness combined with contentment as opposed to the things that get in our way. 
The author in in verses four and five talk about some of these things. Uh, They write that uh, there are things that get in the way of living this life of godliness with contentment, such as uh, a a love of controversy, such as disputes about words, uh, a greed and and, and selfishness. And, And we find this in our text. And so the author is saying to us, the issue is not about money or wealth. The author, even later on in our text, goes on and addresses the rich folk. We're in verse 17 now. Command them, command the rich folk not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. What we didn't hear was, hey, rich people, give away your money. Get rid of your money. We didn't hear that. The author is shaping and trying to reshape the whole way that we understand the world. And so the issue is not what do we do with our lives related to money. It's how are you driven in your life? Do you follow the material gain or wealth, or do you live your life striving for that fleeting happiness that comes with those things? Do you you choose to operate in a system that rewards desires for more, for the materialistic goods, for the scarcity model in which I need to get and get and get? Do we live our lives to fill our emotional and spiritual hunger with material things? Or are we able to reimagine what gives us worth? What makes us human? Because our worth is not in what we do or do not have. Our our worth is because we are made in the image of God. Our worth is because we are beloveds of God. So I'm reminded of the story of of this teacher who who created an assignment for his students in his elementary school classroom, and and he asked them to draw what they wanted to be when they grow up. You might have heard this story. Some students came back and and they drew an astronaut or or a Hollywood star or a judge or or a singer or a scientist. And, And as he's at home that afternoon, that evening, flipping through, grading these sheets of paper, he stops because one of them simply says happy so the next day he goes to this girl Christine and says Christine I I think you misunderstood the assignment and Christine looks up at him and says mister I think you misunderstood life perhaps in this season we're we're being invited to reset our values to reset our priorities to remember that we do life with and for the sake of one another. And so as these leaves turn and change, as as the weather turns, may, may we move towards God's belovedness and then may we remember that we have and what we don't have has no bearing on our happiness at all. It's our hope. It's our desires of community, of abundance, It's the ways in which we choose to relate to one another. Our happiness is in the one who creates community, who allows for life to continue in abundance, who invites us into relationship with the holy and with one another. It is 
there where we put our trust. And so it's not about get rid of what you have. It's do good with what you have. Remembering that what you have doesn't define you. Amen? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time together, for this opportunity to be gathered together from across the United States, across the Washington uh, State, across the Puget Sound area, connected by your love and your spirit, trusting that your love is bigger than even what we can imagine. And so we pray, oh God, that you will continue to stir in us this reminder that our worth is in you, that you make us whole, and that we are driven by a love of you and a love for one another. Make us bold. It is in your holy and powerful name that we pray. Amen.